Amen. Please have a seat. And some of you are thinking something horrible has happened. This is not the order we normally do things. Uh, this morning, we have changed the uh, order of our service. We've done it intentionally. Um, we've done it on purpose, and I'll, I'll kind of share a little bit about that. Our, our worship is, is always motivated by God's love for us, and it actually should not be motivated the other way around, which sounds strange. I mean, we, we sing because we love God. We do, but not be, only because God loved us first. And so our worship is always motivated out of something that God has initiated towards us. He instigates it, He makes the first move, and we respond. So today, what we're going to do is flip our service exactly backwards. We just sang two songs. Those of you who have been at Uniontown for a long time, no, we sing two songs at the end, not at the beginning. And what about the offering? You are breaking one of the commandments. We have not taken the offering yet. Our offering is going to be received right after the message this morning. So will the connection cards, so you have enough time to write an entire novel on the connection cards if you want. Um, <laughs> really, the, the idea is this. We, we are going to look at the Word of God, and then it's going to allow us some extra time at the end to respond to the Word of God, both by giving and by singing. And so, it'll, first service, it seemed to work. Only a few people stomped out angry that we didn't do the offering at the right time, so we're okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. You guys okay? You awake? Everybody with me? <laughs> Dan's out of here. See you. <laughs> um, so this has been a weird sermon series to this point, and that's a strange way to describe it, uh, but it's just been straight up weird for me. Part of it's because it has been so very, very heavy. Um, and actually, the, the, <laughs> we, we, we named the series When God Calls You Out for that very reason, because when you read through the minor prophets, it does feel like God's very heavy finger is just being driven right into your sternum. And so what's happening is we're hearing the voice of God and how, how our sin affects His heart. And let's be clear, our sin hurts Him. Our, our sin frustrates Him. Uh, our sin breaks His heart. Um, I think there's times when we uh, look at God's Word that we should walk away feeling that heaviness. I think there's times where we should leave this place understanding that our sinfulness is far worse than we'd ever want to admit, and that God knows that. But, but that's not what we're going to leave with today. Today, I want us to walk away knowing that we are indeed more sinful. Tim Keller puts this in a way that nobody else could, so I'm just going to steal it from him, okay? Today we want to leave knowing we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but we are more loved than we could ever dare to hope. And that's what we want to walk away with today. Um, when, we, when, when Jason prayed and, and as we've prepared for this morning, our prayer has been that, that God wouldn't just show us the shortfalls and the shortcomings of Israel, but that God would take that, that very heavy finger and stick it in our chest and, and, and communicate to us those areas in our life where we've fallen short. And then He would show us Christ. And so that's what today is all about. So looking at the book of Micah, if you want to open up that, that book, Micah there, uh, there's seven chapters. I'm not going to deal with all of them. I really am just going to focus on two key passages in the book of Micah as we walk 
through the idea of what the message of Micah is and how God is trying to communicate to us. Uh, when you try to understand Micah and the context of Micah, what Israel is going through at the time, what level of sinfulness is there, how they're behaving, how they're not behaving, all those things, you find a lot of different things about how they're, they're um, disappointing God. They're, they're arrogant, they're prideful, they're, they're stealing things that they don't deserve, they're conceited, they have this understanding of themselves and view of themselves that's much higher than it actually should be, they mistreat people, they, they steal honor from people who deserve honor. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. These people are just a broken people. And so as you look at Micah, understanding that's the background, when you look at Micah 3 in particular, that's where we're going to park for a little while, what you find in Micah chapter 3 are the effects of sin, not just for the people of Israel, but the effects of sin throughout all of Scripture. And even today into our culture and, and into our situation. And so I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of Micah chapter 3. And it's a stark, and it's actually a little shocking and surprising and hard to read when you understand what it is that God's saying here. And Micah 3 verse 1 says this, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good, love the evil, tear the skin from my people, their flesh from off of their bones. You eat the flesh of my people, you flay their skin from off of them, you break their bones in pieces, and you chop them up like meat in a pot, like, like flesh in a cauldron. Anybody's life verse? Anybody have that written on their nursery wall? Yeah, probably not. That picture that is given for us right there, now we don't know, it, 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 I tend to believe that is a, a literal description of the behavior of the people of Israel, the fact that they are actually gone so far that they've given themselves over to a level of cannibalism. The, the, the point, though, in this passage as you look at it is how desperately wicked this people must be in order to be described like this by a prophet of God. And understanding that really the, the crux of it all, the, the foundation of it all is, is what happened in the beginning of verse 2. These people now hate the good and love the evil. And that's a, that's a brokenness at its most basic level. They hate good, love evil. I mean, you, you can't get any more broken than that. That's at its foundation. And, and sin does that to us where it comes in and it, it crushes the moral gauge of our heart and actually replaces our, our moral gauge with, with this other gauge of selfishness and covetousness, and it kind of sets in on us. And so there's a slipping that happens, and so now we love the evil, hate the good. So, so let me point something out to you. Actually, I think we see this actually pictured as far back as Genesis chapter 3 with the interaction of the serpent and Adam and Eve. So, so let, me, let me read this to you. So the serpent, being real, real crafty, craftier than any other beast of the field, he approaches the woman, Eve, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, and he says this, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, Now see, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, just, let's be clear, just to point this out, God actually didn't tell them not to touch it. Um, some people think that Adam told Eve, God said don't touch it to try to keep her away from it. I have no idea. The point is this. The serpent comes and instantly challenges the Word of God. And Eve's response is interesting. There's actually a positive nature to her response. No, 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 no. no. See, you're looking at it wrong, Mr. Serpent, which is weird. 
we have all of these trees, everything you can possibly imagine, every fruit here in the garden God has made perfectly for us. We don't have to stand back from any of them. We, we can eat for weeks and weeks and weeks, never having tasted the same fruit and never having to have touched kale. It's a good place to be. So we can just, we can swallow this up. This is an amazing, we, have, we can eat of any fruit of the tree, any fruit except for the one. Except for the one. The serpent says to the woman in verse 4 of chapter 3 in Genesis, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the attack of the serpent, the attack of Satan on Eve is this. Oh, hold on, hold on. You're probably not going to die. Not, I mean, think about it. And let's be real. The reason you're not allowed to touch that tree, it's because God's holding out on you. Because God knows how good that fruit is. God knows how amazing that fruit is, and He doesn't want you to have it, because if you have it, then you're like God, and want, God wants to keep you down. And in Eve's heart, she then changes the way she views that tree in verse 6, and it says, She saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was be, to be desired to make someone wise. So she took its fruit, she ate of it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So in that, in that moment, what has happened is, 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 is the serpent has come and says, see, God's holding out on you. And, and I know you love all these other fruit and all these other trees and all this wonderful creation that God has given to you. But let me tell you the truth. That all that good stuff, eh, go for this one. This one is where it's at. And, and unfortunately, we're the exact same way. We love the evil and we shun that which is good. And I'm not talking about the culture. I'm not talking about them. I'm not talking about liberal bias or liberal media or even atheism out in American culture. That is not what I'm talking about by saying they love the evil and hate the good. I'm talking about those of us sitting in this room right now. We love the evil. We hate what is good? We have been given everything we need, and yet we want something different. I'm going to be careful how I say this, but we have been given a gift within our marriage of a very intimate and personal nature. We have been given the opportunity to enjoy a sexual relationship within the marriage boundaries, and yet... We run to other outlets that can't come that close to satisfying any of our needs. We love what is evil, and we run away from what is good. It's interesting. One of the things that, that was happening in the people is very appropriate for today. That, that these people were, were so broken and so focused on themselves and so loving of what, what they wanted and disregarding everybody else that they were stealing honor from other people who deserved honor. Take a moment, flip back, go to Micah chapter 2, verse 8. I just want you to, to see Micah 2, verse 8 real quick. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
It's interesting. It says this. God's talking about his people. Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. And you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. Let me explain that. You strip the rich road from those who the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly. So, so what you're doing is you see somebody walking by you, you recognize them, you see them, you understand that they have a robe that you want. That thing is awesome. And so you rip it off their body regardless of who they are. See, see what this verse says, if you read it too quick, if you don't it says you're not thinking about the war. So so it almost says, um, 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 um. So you tear the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. You're not thinking about the fight that's going to come after you take the, the robe from them. It, you can see that. However, what it's actually saying is this. You tear the robe off of somebody who has just returned from battle. Somebody who you should be giving great honor to. Somebody who deserves your respect. And what you're doing is standing in the street and being like, I don't care about them. I just want their stuff. And they've missed the opportunity to heap honor onto somebody who is in great, who deserves great honor. So Memorial Day is a holiday here in America that we take to remember those who've served our country. And, and again, let me, let me I'll be very clear, and I, I want to be as clear about this as I can for as long as I, I have an opportunity to. America is not a great savior. And the gift of America is not our salvation. It's a wonderful gift, and it's a gift and an opportunity that's been given to us by living in this place where we can spread the gospel in ways that other countries won't be able to, and so we should take great advantage of that opportunity, but we should never worship it. However, we do ourselves a great disservice if we don't honor those to whom honor is deserved. And so among us, and, and I'm not sure how many are here, if any at all, but, but what I want to make sure that we do, Uniontown, we, we must thank those, not steal honor from those who served our country, but we must thank those who have served our country. So, so if, you, if you've served our country, if you'd stand, we should be thanking them. Men and women alike, thank you. I mean that, thank you. It's a great gift that you've given to us and that your family's given to us. And so, Unitown, let's be careful. May we not follow these footsteps to not honor those who deserve honor and seek to steal from them and take from them. So, so one of the problems was that they were, they were loving the evil and hating the good. Another one, a result, an effect of sin, I guess, if you will, if you look at Micah chapter 3 again, um, verse 4, it says, then they're going to cry to the Lord, but he'll not answer them. He'll hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Uh, verse 6, therefore, it'll be like night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips because there's no answer from God. See, another effect of sin is an alienation or a separation from God. See, what the prophet's saying is that God's face will be hidden. It'll be like darkness. There'll be no answer from him when you, you call. It's, it's not because God is being childish or immature. 
It's, it's not because God is just hiding. It's because when sin is involved, we're alienated from God. And that's the most basic effect of, 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 Micah, of, sorry, of Genesis chapter 3, right? The most basic result of the sin of Adam and Eve is that, that they were in this beautiful created place where there was no sin and it was perfection and, and it was all theirs and they could wash in it and play in it and enjoy it and just be overwhelmed by that. I mean, it takes any vacation you've ever been on and it just is a million times better than that. There's no headaches, there's no fine. I mean, it's just perfect. But because of their sin... There's an alienation, a breaking of relationships. Think, think, when God comes to the garden after they've sinned, do you remember God saying, where are you? Where'd you guys go? I mean, Adam and Eve are playing hide and seek with God. And then when he finally gets them to come out, they, they come out and, 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 and they're, they're wearing leaves and the common, we, we hit ourselves because we were naked and ashamed. We hit ourselves. And God's question is this, who told you you were naked? Who told you? See, there's a, there's a shift that occurs now. So no longer is it a place free from guilt and shame. Now all of a sudden, shame has been introduced. There's a reason to hide. And now there's a, a breaking of relationship between Adam, Eve, and God. And I, and I think one of the things we need to remember, so as God shuts the garden and, and removes Adam and Eve from the garden and, and removes them from his presence, and now there is this, this wall that stands. And I say this all the time, but I'm going to say it a million more times. So, because I think I've heard so many times in my life, it's like God can't have anything to do with sin. And I, and I think in our heads, in my head anyway, um, it almost is like a kryptonite for Superman. God can't come next to script. Whoop, nope, sin. He's got to stay away. And this shows a weakness in God because he can't draw near to sin. And that's wrong thinking. Because with, with, with God, the reason God can't come near sin is as soon as he approaches it, he destroys it. So, so it rightly said, sin can't dwell in God's presence. And so, may I challenge our thinking a little bit in this. When you look at the garden, as God removes Adam and Eve from the garden, yes, yes, it was a punishment, but it's a punishment out of mercy. Because if he had not removed them from his presence, he would have no option but to destroy them. See, their sin affects the relationship they have with God himself. Our sin affects the relationship we have with God doesn't it? Romans chapter 1 talks about those who continue to pursue things that aren't from God, continue to pursue things that are, are sinful and lustful. And, and, and Romans 1 finally says, listen, at some point, God gives them up to the lustful desires of their soul. God just says, fine, you know what? And this is the scariest pronouncement of judgment in all of Scripture. You, you want that? You want that? Fine. You can have that, but you can't have me. And he gives them what they want. Um, this is a, first service, there was a moment that occurred here, but First Peter chapter 3 is a, uh, a passage that I have quoted, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not exaggerating, 
six times this week. It might be seven. Um, and, and so um, this is a, a, something that God's trying to get a hold of my heart with. And I think this pictures very well how our sin alienates us and separates us from God himself is this one passage. See, in 1 Peter 3, what, what God does is he, through Peter, talks about the, the family relationships. He says, okay, so, so wives are going to act like this and do this, and this is how you love your husbands and how you, do, you know, honor your husbands and do these things. Now, husbands, hmm. husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So, here's where the joke is, right? Women. Who can understand a woman's mind? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Let's pray for that brother right now because I know where this is going. He's not sure. So <laughs> but that's, that's true, right? I mean, that's, and what, what Peter says is, now, now listen, husbands, you know what your job is? Live with them in an understanding way. So when we do, and we do, go, ah, women, that's not an excuse. It's an admission of guilt. As husbands, we have the responsibility to know our wives like no other. Oh, it gets better. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as a weaker vessel. Ooh, this is the picture. See this fine china? Ooh. And you're walking across the living room and all the landmines that are there. Ooh. Ooh. Husbands, your job is until death do you part, you are carrying her like this. And you are going to find the way to deliver her to where she needs to be without scrape or scratch, without chip or crack. <laughs> I need grace. You ready? Seriously, no, you're here the second. Here's the grace moment. Not all of our wives are fragile vessels, okay? And that's not a bad thing. But when you say it, it comes out like, oh, I'm going to get beat up for that one. Because they're not. Some of us would be like, my wife can take it because her, her dad was like, rrr, rrr, she can give it back just as much, so I have to be careful. Yes, you do. Because you're commanded to. And so as you're commanded to honor her as that weaker vessel, as the fragile China. That's your job. So, Peter says, you are to live with her in an understanding way. You need to know her like no other. You need to honor her as the weaker vessel. You need to carry her like that fine China. And if you don't, you know what happens? First Peter 3, verse 7 says, you do this so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, if you choose to disobey those very two commands about how you're supposed to husband well, men, then your relationship with God is affected because you are living an act of sin. So, there's separation as a result of sin. Okay, so wait, Frank, you said this was going to end in good news, right? Right now, and I'm feeling it. We're getting there. I've still got about another five minutes of bad news, but that's okay. Because <laughs> not only do we 
uh, the effect of sin is we tend to gravitate towards evil instead of good and love those evil instead of good. Not only do we experience a separation or an alienation from God, but, but sometimes it seems like everything's going okay. I'm getting away with it. This is going great. And, and the age-old question is, so what, what could it hurt if I actually did this? I mean, come on, God's not judging me yet. Well, um, Micah chapter 3, verse 11, the, the heads of judgment, the priests and the prophets, are, it says they're leaning on the Lord and they're saying in the midst of their sin, well, isn't God in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. We're fine. He hasn't judged me yet. I'm okay. We're good. That's the serpent saying, you won't surely die just because she's still breathing. See, see, God's lack of immediate condemnation or judgment or destruction isn't a sign of his approval of your behavior. If you have kids, you know that. The lack of judgment and condemnation and destruction or the delay in those things is actually an instrument of God's mercy. 2 Peter 3.9 says that, that he's not uh, slack as some men count slackness. He doesn't delay like some people are like, oh, God's late, God's late. No, but instead his patience is so that you would come to repentance because he is not willing that any should perish. He's being patient with you to give you a chance. And then sin, ultimately, in verse 12, destroys us. Therefore, because of you, Zion, let me try that again. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the house will become a wooded height. See, our sin ultimately destroys us. And it's funny, you ask the question, so why, why did that happen? Why did, I don't understand. Why did that, I, I'm not sure why that happened. And, and people are like, well, you look at the history of Israel, and what Mike is prophesying, and what happens is Babylon comes in. It's this nation that's rising up and becoming a superpower, and they're evil, they're mean, they're sinners, and they come in and they destroy Israel, and they wipe out Jerusalem. And that's how this all happens, and, and this is what's going on. And that's why because of Babylon. And no, Micah says in verse 12, it's because of you. It, it's, it's, it's Adam. Well, you know, the woman gave me the fruit. Just saying. No, 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 no. Stop blaming other people. It's because of you. God has called you out. And the problem isn't an external problem. It's not our school systems. It's not our lack of education. It's not our country or our country's leadership. It's not our enemies. It's not our parents. It's not our financial situation. It's not our busy, uh, business sense. It's, it's our sin. It's our brokenness. Our nature, our, our depravity, our wandering, our arrogance and pride, our, our sin sickness, our rebellion against God as we worship ourselves, And we're all born with that, this sinful nature. And what's interesting is as we get older, as we grow up, we just get better and better at sinning. And it, it does to us what it did to Adam and Eve. It separates us from God. And it makes a relationship with him impossible while we are rebelling against him. See, we, we've offended a great and a holy God who has rightly described the great judgment that's going to come. 
and we need to be saved and rescued from that judgment. Let me take a moment just to throw this at you. Who are we being saved from? See, in our minds, I think we, we don't quite go the, the full uh, side to, it's a Marvel super comic villain who comes in and wipes out the world. We're not there. But you know where we are most of the time as Christians? We need to be saved from Satan. No. You need to be saved from the wrath and judgment of an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy God whose judgment is just and right. And if we stop right there, well, that's bad news. We've been separated from God because of our sin, and we're, 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 there's nothing we can do about it. We're, we're helpless. We can't do anything about it ourselves. And there's a, a heaviness to that and a weight to that, and, and, and I want you to feel that weight. But I want you to see the other side of the coin, if you turn your page to Micah chapter 7, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, God, will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of of old. The God who we need to be saved from is the God who saves us. I, I, I love this passage. I, told, <laughs> I said this morning, I was like, the goosebump scale, that thing's off the charts. Because you read such bad news and then you get to this place where the prophet's like, man, but who is like God? Who is like God? Think about it for a moment. Who is like God who, who carries away our iniquity, who, who pardons our crookedness, who passes over our rebellion, passes over our transgression, the, the thing that has breached our relationship with him? Who is like God, the one who, who doesn't hold on to his anger and doesn't remain angry with us? Why, why wouldn't he remain angry with us? We've done nothing but rebel against him. Why? Because he likes to, he longs to, he loves to, he's inclined to, he takes great pleasure in showing us steadfast love and mercy. Who is like our God? See, I would have loved to just start in 718 and kind of go from there, but, but you can't do that because if you don't understand the darkness from which you're being saved, if you don't understand how, how, how grave the situation is, then, then the, the hope and the glory isn't as sweet. It's one thing to say to somebody, oh, you saved my life, when they call and tell you, dude, you missed the end of class. There's an assignment due tomorrow and you're going to flunk the class if you don't do it. Oh, you saved my life. There's a whole different feel to it when you get a phone call from somebody that says, I'm going to donate my kidney to you. You saved my life. 
We must understand the darkness, the, 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 the place, the hole, the rebellion that we're stuck in, the, the miry pit that we can't get our feet out of. We've got to understand where we are and where this great God who pardons iniquity pulls us from. Who is like our God? What is like our salvation? Look at verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will show us this great mercy. He will deal with our sins by stomping on them, trampling them under his feet. Imagine that for a moment. So there's your sin. He's like, done, like a cockroach. Like a cockroach. I mean, in our minds, like, and it is rightly so. For us, sin is this insurmountable weight. And for God, it's like, but it goes on. And then he picks up our sin, and it says he casts our sin into the depths of the ocean. So he stomps on it, picks it up. Now, for me, it'd be like skipping a rock. He'd be like, oh, man. But when God chucks something, it's going for a while. And so God chucks it, and he says it goes into the depths of the sea. I love, Spurgeon says he doesn't throw it into the shallows so it can wash back up on shore. He goes to the deepest part of the ocean. Corey Ten Boom, uh, in commenting on this, says, I love that passage because, because what we need to do is this, take, let, allow God to stomp on our sin, cast it into the depths of the ocean, and then we should run out there and put a sign that says, no fishing. <laughs> this, is, this is our salvation. When, it's, it's Psalm 103. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It's, it's, it's Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That's our salvation. And you've got to understand that in the midst of our salvation, when, when God takes the guilt of our sin away so that it no longer condemns us, he actually takes away the power of sin so, so it can no longer rule over us. When, when, when God takes away our sin and he stomps on it and he sends it into the depths of the ocean, no more to be found, our very identity is changed in that moment. So instead of wearing a name tag that has, has, has how we have all fallen short and how we have all screwed it up every which way possible, how we have become sinner after sinner after sinner and we just have continued to sin time and time again, instead of having a name tag with that, our name is forever changed and now we are a child of God. God will show his faithfulness and his compassionate love just as he promised he would. Um, um, a moment of, um, I don't know what it is. I should just talk. Um, so when I first worked on this message and, and I got to this point, like I know exactly what I'm going. I'm talking about the promise of God and how God doesn't have to make an oath. God makes a promise so that we will understand how serious he takes it. But God's word is always true. He's not a liar, so he could just say he's going to do it. He never has to swear or, or, or make an oath or, or any of that stuff. However, the faithfulness to Jacob and the steadfast love to Abraham, that word steadfast love is one of my favorite words in all of Scripture because it's the chesed in Hebrew, chesed. And it's the picture of God's covenant love for his people. And I think that gets said a lot, but we don't quite understand what it means. And, and I'll be the first to admit, I don't think I quite fully understand the depths of this. But maybe I can paint the picture for us so we can understand it just a little bit better. And the picture is coming right out of Scripture in Genesis chapter 15 
where God calls Abraham to make a covenant with him. And he says, Abraham, I want you to go get these animals, bring them back, cut them in half, put them in two rows, one half on either side, two rows, so there's an aisle in the middle. All right, now if it was you or I, we'd be like, God has called me to some crazy thing. But for them, it, it was a cultural norm. It was a cultural norm for a peasant who was going to swear his allegiance to royalty or to some supreme person to go and get the animals and split the animals and lay them out in the road so there was an aisle. And then what would, what would happen is if, the, if the, the great superior person, the great lord or king or whatever you want to call it, wanted to allow the peasant to make a covenant with him, he would lay those pieces out. The peasant would then walk between the pieces of the animal. And he would walk through, and as he was making his promise, he would continue walking through. And the picture given was this. I'm, I'm making my, swearing my allegiance to this, this Lord, to this king, and I'm walking through, and, and if I don't fulfill my end of the responsibilities, my obligations, then may I be like these animals and be cut in two and be killed myself. It's a very visual contract. And so when God called Abraham to get the animals and to lay them out that way, Abraham's not freaking out about it. He's like, all right, I'm about to swear my allegiance to God in this covenant. And so, so Abraham goes, he gets the animals, Genesis 15, and he lays them out, and he waited, and waited, and waited, and waited. Any of you like waiting? Anna, waiting. Enough where he had laid out these animals. So now there's dead animals who have been split in two laying along in this, this row. And now the birds of prey are coming and trying to eat the animals. And he's, he's out there like, get out of here. I'm trying to get him to shoo. And he's trying to get rid of them. And, it's like, ah. and then it grows dark. And it says that, that God himself... Um, appearing as the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke, like he will later in Exodus when he leads his people through the wilderness. He, he appears, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. God himself passes through the animals. Um, which is shocking. Because no noble, no royalty, no king, no superior, no lord, is going to do that. But God does. He's not just promising a blessing to Abraham. He's not just saying, I got you. He's saying, if I don't fulfill my word, death be to me. That, that Abraham had to have been taken aback by that. A ceremony would never have gone like that. So now it's Abraham's turn, right? Well, the ceremony ends without Abraham having ever walked through the pieces. It's one thing for God to go through the pieces. It's a whole other one for Abraham to not. In effect, what God is saying to Abraham is this. This covenant, this promise is all on me. And Abraham, if I don't fulfill my word, death be to me. 
And Abraham, if you don't fulfill your word, death be to me. Abraham can't possibly fulfill his word. You see that time and time again. God promises that this is on him. Don't miss the last phrase of verse 20. And he makes this promise from the days of old. Okay, wait, hold on. How could that possibly happen? How could God say, if, the, if you don't fulfill it, it's on me. I'll die. How can that possibly happen? How can the immortal die? Well, in order for the immortal to die, he must put on mortality, right? Huh. Spoiler alert. Turn to Micah chapter 5. Verse 2. One of the greatest prophecies about the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient days. Verse 4, he, talking about this one who will come from Bethlehem, he shall stand and he'll shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The promise of God to show faithfulness, to throw our sins into the depths of the ocean, to save us, to rescue us, is not fulfilled in an event. It's fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in the birth of Jesus on that incredible day. It's fulfilled in the perfect life that Jesus Christ lived. It's fulfilled in the death that Jesus died where you and I should have died. The promise of God to cover our sins is wrapped up in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Someone pointed out to me that, that just as it grew dark as God walked through the animals, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, on Calvary that day, it grew dark as the Lamb of God died to take away our sins. Who is like our God? Who is like our God that He would reach out of heaven to save those who are in rebellion against Him? Who is like our God that promises that if we would simply call out to Him, recognizing we're a sinner, admitting that He is the Son of God who came to die on the cross for our sins, that He would save us, that He would rescue us, and that He would give us His righteousness? Who is like our God? May that picture and that understanding of how great our God is and how great our salvation is inform the way we worship. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the precious promise that we find in it. I thank you, Father, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That he didn't wait until we were good because 
It would never happen. Lord, I thank you that in Christ we have the forgiveness of sins. I thank you that in Jesus we've seen your faithfulness. God, I pray that you would continue to open the eyes of those who don't know you. I know that there's some sitting here even this morning who don't know Christ. Father, it's no mistake, it's no accident. I know you have them here for a reason, so I pray that today they would cry out with their mouth for a Savior. That they would know that Jesus Christ came to save them from their sins. Lord, I pray for those who are sitting in this place who know you. I pray that as we, as we give, as we sing, as we spend time putting words to our worship, Father, may we do so in such a way that's, that's informed by how great a God we have and how incredible his salvation is. Lord, I pray that you would get much glory even in this morning and in this place. It's in Jesus' good, majestic name I pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning has been different. I hope you have your connection card finished by now. What we want to do now is simply worship. All of life is worship, isn't it? So when we leave this place, we worship with our hands and our feet. And while we're here in this place, we have the opportunity to worship by giving, which is is simply an exercise in us remembering that it's God that's given to us to begin with. It's an opportunity for us to honor him and the first, with the first fruits of what we have. And then we have an opportunity to worship with words, with singing. So today, I, I'm asking, I'm praying, I'm encouraging you to worship with the understanding of what it is God's done for you. Let's worship together.